Welcome to Scrubcast, where we explore clinical, translational, and health services research from Stanford University's Department of Surgery through conversations with the authors. I'm Rachel Baker. Today we'll focus on an original investigation published in JAMA Network Open titled Trends in U.S. Surgical Procedures and Healthcare System Response to Policies Curtailing Elective Surgical Operations During the COVID-19 Pandemic. I'm joined by senior author Dr. Sherry Wren. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. Dr. Wren is the Chief of General Surgery at the VA Palo Alto, a professor of surgery with Stanford University, and the Department of Surgery's Vice Chair of Diversity and Professional Development. How did you become interested in looking at elective surgery trends during COVID? It's actually an interesting story. It was an evolution. When COVID hit the world in early 2020, and there was a call from various government officials, uh, colleges of surgeons to shut down elective surgery, I actually thought initially to look at this as sort of a way of validating and defining what essential surgery is in a nation. And this whole concept of essential surgery really stems out of my interest in global and humanitarian surgery. Years ago, there was a series of books called the Disease Control Priorities. And in the Disease Control Priorities 3 book, there was for the first time ever a volume devoted to surgery in low and middle income countries. And there was an analysis done that looked at how would you sort of um, avert Uh, about 80% of death and disability if you are sort of starting up a national surgical system and what types of procedures should be part of that package. So that was the beginning of the, how I wanted to look at this, which is, wow, this has implications and what essential surgery is. Then of course, I think a lot of us by the time April and May came around thought that COVID was gonna be one and done. And then, of course, here we are two plus years later and still still dealing with it. And over time, the question sort of also morphed into how does the system respond? One was sort of a government imposed mandate when there wasn't really that much disease to when the first surges. Um, How do you regulate? What did we learn? I mean, it just sort of became this natural kind of experiment to begin looking at these things. And I'm still looking at it. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating. We're going to be studying this for years to come. So how did you design this initial study? I mean, how did you define what an elective surgical procedure was and define the original time frame? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest things that happened was a group of companies got together and agreed to, for kind of humanitarian purposes for studying COVID, to waive pricing and all sorts of things and put their data out for people to use. So there's something called the COVID-19 Research Database Consortium that started. I was the 20th application to that consortium and the first surgical one. And it took a, it took a while to actually find a data set that 
would uh, do this. And we ended up with a uh, healthcare claims technology company, Change Healthcare, who really became great partners and they're still partnering and are very interested in this for really kind of doing social good. And we defined time sort of based on announcements that came. So CMS had an announcement of sort of recommending cessation of um, elective surgical activity, as did the American College of Surgeons. And that was sort of where we took the time from. And then there was an announcement, okay, we should uh, resume surgery uh, now. And so we set our time period of that nadir based on these national and statewide governmental announcements. We then used the CDC case tracking to identify when what we called sort of the fall and winter surge was, and that became the second time period. That feels very logical to me, using those two organically occurring stages of the pandemic. When you describe the study, you use the pronoun we quite often. How did you decide who you wanted to work with and construct your research team? To do these types of studies, you really need excellent statisticians and analysts. So I used our Aspire group with Amber Tricky, who's you know our really the head. Uh, she's got a PhD in um, epidemiology statistics, and really assembled a team of an analyst that's Hiram Eddington. Liam Rose is a medical economist, and they actually have a you know very a different skill set in being able to think about how to analyze data like this. You know, Arden Morris obviously uh, has an incredible, uh, rich research uh, background in uh, claims data and doing uh, large analyses. Aviva had done some work with me before um, on a large project and also was very interested in it from this sort of global surgery um, side. And then lastly, uh, Mark Cullen, who was the former head of sort of the population health group at Stanford, was one of the people who sort of started the COVID-19 research consortium and also has significant experience in um, this type of methodology and kind of how do you frame it and think about it. So it, it really takes a village to do something of this magnitude. That's awesome. How do you and think no, the community? Nobody ever, nobody ever wants me doing math. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my skills are, um, I, I am always an idea generator, and I can look at and interpret data in unique ways, and often see things in data patterns. But generating data is not my forte. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> How did you design the study? How did you define what an elective procedure was and what time frame you would use? So I have to say, Dr. Morris was, uh, I, I learned some good skills from Dr. Morris on organizational. We actually had bi-weekly, um, every other week uh, meetings uh, with objectives and where were we and presenting. We would look at the analyses, what we we're going to do next. And it- So organized. You know, yeah, it was very organized. It was- um, that was very helpful and had the whole team there, which helped because again, nice. everybody's got their own expertise. Getting the data is, is very um, 
the data interface that they had to go to took a lot of work to actually get the data because the data all had to be analyzed on this HIPAA compliant interface that Change Healthcare provided. So, and then you could only, we had to have approval for every type of export because it all has to be that nobody could ever be identified. So this is the ultimate de-identified data set. Just the uh, mechanics of getting this data uh, took a lot of work. Were the results what you expected? Did anything surprise you? You know, it's interesting. I think that that is a bifurcated answer. So throughout, you know, by the time I started with this idea to the time we finally closed on it again, you know, this had kept going and going and going. And I think in the world of surgery, this was not a surprise, right? It was not a surprise that after this initial shutdown, people really got to work and they got to work, uh, in fact, sometimes coming in over like the prior year's volumes. And I remember, you know, we were getting updates uh, at faculty meetings, you know, we're coming in at X percent over last year. Thank you so much for your hard work and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. But when you think about the world outside of surgery, whether it be the lay public or even our medical colleagues, all of the news stories and everything was like, you know, services have not returned to normal people are still avoiding health care people aren't coming back so it was interesting when you would show this data to non-surgeons they were really shocked by it mm. and actually it sort of hurt us in the review process because the first time um i'd sent it uh, for a review it went to a surgical editor who was like yeah i already know this this isn't very interesting <laughs> well, nobody else knows it outside of our field. I have to agree. I read the article the first time. I was like, well, duh. Didn't anybody know this? And apparently not. No one knew. Yeah. And that's why I think there was such a wide interest in media. And I think a lot of it was, it was so, just think about the news stories for the last two years. It's like everybody's avoiding healthcare and nobody's getting healthcare. You know, healthcare has been shut down. And the data actually shows that that didn't happen. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, the, when they shut down ambulatory surgery, you know, during that time, I mean, you know, there are ambulatory surgery centers around the United States. People lost their jobs, right? Yeah. You know, people lost their livelihood, um, places closed. And, you know, it's for hospitals, surgical services are a huge amount of the bottom line. So I think there was an economic driver, which is uh, significant to hospitals and ambulatory care centers to get these services back online. The analysis, you know, obviously did not go into how in the world did all of this happen again. I mean, it was so multifactorial, right? Mm -hmm. In the beginning, we had supply chain was in question. We didn't have a testing protocol. <laughs> you know, it took a while to sort of sort out, okay, how do we deal with this? Everybody, we were looking at what was happening in Italy and Europe and New York. 
and you know everybody was on a ventilator and all this. I mean, I just talked to a friend of mine who is was chief of surgery, is chief of surgery in one of the major New York hospitals, and she's she's telling me, I mean, she still has PTSD to the initial COVID response in New York, you know, declaring eight people dead a day and everybody on a vent and you didn't have anything, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it took, you know, that was, that was COVID hitting the United States. And then what happened is that didn't really happen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Up until I have to say Omicron for me was a much more difficult time. Yeah, I was wondering if you were planning on doing a follow-up study that focused on the Omicron surge in particular. Yeah, and Omicron is fascinating because it's not because people were so sick. It's because it was so infectious, people really weren't sick. But we basically you know, had a huge amount of healthcare workers who could not be in the hospital or the clinics because they were exposed or ill at home. And you took out a lot of healthcare workers. So this shutdown was really more painful because it wasn't a lot about people being very sick. It was about people just not being able to be present. Mm-hmm. And in the last two years, a lot of, I, I think there's a lot of people who have left the field. Um, nursing is very hard to get places and you can't run a hospital without nurses. So true. You know, the traveling nurses now, if you can travel as a nurse, you can go anywhere and make an unbelievable amount of money now because so many hospital systems have nursing deficits. So it, it was just like the first iteration of COVID was scary, but invigorating. You know, you're writing, it's like, oh my God, you know, this is evolving in front of our eyes. You know, how are we going to test? How are we going to make a protocol for this, this, and this? And now, two plus mm-hmm. years later, it's not that people are that sick, but our shut this shutdown hurt way worse, way worse than the first yeah. one. And remember, in the first shutdown, I mean, oh my God, you know, there was some article that got written by a CEO of a hospital in Massachusetts who was doing like a, a late night run to accept medical supplies in an unmarked truck because getting medical supplies was a was a big deal. There was a lot of fake medical supplies out there. You know, the shortages, where we're going to have enough PPE, you know, all of that, all of that in that initial March, April was just, it was just a swirling vortex of unknown. Mm -hmm. And as those things got sorted out later, you, you know, it, it really changed. And And I think my personal interpretation, because it's an interpretation, you know, how do you prove this? Mm-hmm. I think what this actually kind of shows is that the health system became very resilient. And if you just look at California, Northern California was having a different COVID crisis than uh, uh, than Southern California. Southern California, actually, the LA area and those areas were taking a much bigger hit. Right. So, you know, if a hospital in LA is shutting down, well, a hospital up here in Northern California didn't have to shut down because we didn't have, you know, the same issues going on. Mm-hmm. So the responses became more local and more fluid, which I, I think shows resiliency in the system. And it's sort of this big thing of when do you control at a state or federal level versus when do you control at a local level? And there's times and places for both types of regulation. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this type of research will help us 
plan for the next COVID-19? Well, it's interesting that, that you say that. So thank you. That's a leading question. <laughs> we actually have some more analyses. So I want to get back to my original question and where I started this all from, <laughs> which is, how do you define essential surgery? Mm -hmm. And so we've done further analysis. We actually just presented it. We've uh, got the first manuscript written, which is what became essential surgery in, the, in a high income country? You know, obviously the United States is a high income country because when you looked at this list of procedures for low and middle income countries, there was many things, you know, like cardiac surgery isn't on there, you know. Uh, a lot of treatment of different types of cancer isn't on there. And we would all, I think, agree that that is essential surgery. Yeah. So my next goal is to sort of define what is essential surgery and did that happen throughout the United States and to look at it from a disparities angle too. You know, so if we say that having coronary artery bypass surgery is an essential surgery, were various communities across the United States having the same access during this time of essential surgery to that operation? So I think, yeah, there's a lot of places that you can go with this. And it's just a matter of uh, time and um <laughs> and analysts and things like that to really kind of bring this to home because I think there's so many ways you could look at this data. And, you know, when I looked at the data, the, the, the day that I knew the data was accurate, because that's always one of these things when you start one of these big data projects is like, okay, is this really accurate? You know, we were mm -hmm. showing all these differences yeah. and, you know, we had picked a series of operations where you would expect them to drop and then expect them not to drop. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that cesarean sections, really the rate of them didn't drop, I knew that we were doing okay. Nice. I mean, yes, there's some elective C-sections that people have that maybe you would say, okay, those weren't going to happen. They're going to convert those to, to non-C-sections. But for the most part, if you're getting a C-section, you need a C-section. Right. And so that type of procedure is not going to change. That's a, you know, that's, that's an essential surgery that shouldn't be changing. That's so interesting how you could use C-sections as an indicator. I love that. We are just about out of time. So I wanted to ask you one final question and just see if there was anything that you wanted to add about the study or your research in general. I think adding in the whole question of the disparities is really an important one. Mm -hmm. And the company whose data I'm using, Change Healthcare, actually has uh, variables that they can help bring into play to really help address this. So I think that is probably gonna be the next most important contribution after defining what is essential surgery for the United States. And then I think people can take this list of essential surgeries. There's something in, um, in public health called DALIs, Disability Adjusted Life Years and QALIs, Quality Adjusted Life Years. Mm -hmm. I can say personally, that's not an, uh, an analysis type that I personally am going to go to, but it is how you put kind of dollar amounts and how big public health decisions are made. So I think eventually having the analysis go into like um, disability adjusted life years averted by these procedures and things like that will 
kind of finish the public health round off of it. Awesome. I, for one, I'm looking forward to reading your next studies. Well, it's, uh, I, I, I am greatly looking forward to finishing it. And I, I, as you said, I mean, Omicron Delta is another blow that was not expected and mm-hmm. probably gives us another data point to be able to look at. <laughs> like, was Omicron different than Delta? Was it different than the initial shutdown? Because mm-hmm. because the drivers are different. You know, right. having no nurses is a very different driver. Very different problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, always, always more questions. That's the problem. <laughs> Always more questions. Well, it was a pleasure speaking with you today, Dr. Ren. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for all the questions. And I, I look forward to the next uh, chapter. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We want to hear what you think of Scrubcast. You can email us at scrubcast at stanford.edu or hit us up on Twitter at Stanford Surgery. If you like Scrubcast, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like us, smash that five-star review. Scrubcast is a production of Stanford University's Department of Surgery. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Baker. The music is by Midnight Rounds. And our chair is Dr. Mary Hong.